recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 18th, 2012. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Last week, I had started a, a segment with, with Sword Brethren on the doctrine of fascism from a paper attributed to Benito Mussolini, dated 1932. The paper was co-written by a Giovanni Gentile, or Giovanni Gentile, I guess it's spelled for English speakers. But the, um, the paper outlines what fascism is all about, so it has clear historical value because fascism is very little understood by... Um, certainly most Americans today and, and by most people in general. I mean, our idea of fascism is drawn for us by the Jewish-controlled media that basically wants to work, works, endeavors, I should say, to work people into a dichotomy between communism, Marxist communism, and, and, and Rothschild capitalism and pretend as if there are no other choices. And that basically locks people into an acceptance of slavery. Tonight I have Sword Brethren with me. I, I was hoping that um, Severus Nifelson would be here. It doesn't look like he's going to make it, at least for the beginning of the program. We're going to continue to present this paper and make basic comments on it just to give people an idea of what fascism is. One of the words that appears often in, in fascist, in original fascist documents, is the word corporation. And that's a very misunderstood word because it's basically what, when you see corporation in English documents, concerning Mussolini's fascism or Italian fascism. They think of businesses. Well, what it is, yeah, they think of businesses because what it is is it's a transliteration of the Italian word corporation. And corporation does not mean to describe a business in Italian. What it describes is a guild. And what we have with the corporatism of Italian fascism is basically 19th century syndicalism, which is a control of the economy by trade guilds. And that's the, the, the biggest misunderstanding concerning fascism today, and, and it demonstrates the simple-mindedness of, of the typical English speaker in the world today. How you doing? I have Sword Brethren here with me tonight, and, and we're going to discuss the the, the second half of this paper in, in our um, discussion of fascism. How are you doing, Brian? I'm all right. How are you? Wonderful. Praise Yahweh. Where would you like to begin? Do you have any opening comments? Do you have any summary comments from last week? Well, one thought that I had after the program last week was that, um, you know, it, it's very clear from this paper that Mussolini did not have a, a, a belief, at least in 1932, he did not have a belief in the concept of race. He basically um, said that the concept didn't really exist. And, and, and I got the idea that perhaps that was because – I couldn't answer that last week. I was hoping that Severus would be here tonight to discuss that because I'm sure that he may be able to, but it doesn't look like he's making it, not yet anyway. That the, um, 
Yeah, you know, I had the idea last week after the program that perhaps that's because Italy was a, a, um, a recently put-back-together country, which by the time of Garibaldi in the 1870s, when it was reunited, had actually um, been racially diversified through history, shall we say, mm-hmm. with Jews and Arabs in the South and with um, Germanic Lombards in the North. And maybe you could comment on that. I mean, it wasn't a strong, homogenous racial, racially homogenous nation at that time. Well, well, right. And maybe I got the idea that maybe that's why Mussolini tried to assert that race didn't really exist because he was talking in terms of um, Italian unity. And and if you want to unify diverse peoples, you really have to ignore the racial issue, right? You can't make an appeal to race when there is no common race. Right. And that's the, the the only thought I had on that after the program last week. I, I don't know if you want to start or you want me to start with political and social doctrine. Well, that... while we're dealing with the misidentification of corporatism and other issues, it's interesting to see how the communists describe fascism. And Trotsky declared that the historic function of fascism is to smash the working class, destroy its organizations, and stifle political liberties when the capitalists find themselves unable to govern and dominate with the help of democratic machinery, claiming that basically fascism is the last gasp of the capitalist bourgeois to preserve their hold on power when faced with a workers' revolution. And that's that's pretty absurd, isn't it? We I think we've amply demonstrated that fascism is the working man's answer to Jewish capitalism with a rejection of Jewish communism. Well, well, absolutely. It, it's basically to me. It, it seems it, it harkens back to syndicalism, but also to the, the the trade guilds, to the empowerment of the trade guilds that that we had seen empowered in the Middle Ages, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the in in the Middle Ages, trade guilds had a lot of power, and and economies evolved around them in in the old Middle Age, in in the old medieval monarchies. To, to some extent, and, and I think that it's basically just a continuation of that. It's actually, it's actually an empowerment of the common tradesman in, in a lot of ways. And that, of course, and, is why the communists hate it. And fascism is definitely the way I see it. And, and what we could see this with Oswald Mosley in, in, in Britain and with a lot of Hitler's concepts. I, I wouldn't call Adolf Hitler a fascist. And not not by any means in the sense that Mussolini was originally anyway. Mussolini evidently moved a lot closer to a lot of Hitler's positions as time wore on. But but um, it, it seems to me to definitely be a rejection of Jewish capitalism and, and usury slavery and a rejection of Marxist communism at the same time, which, which, um, and we'll see that here in Mussolini's own words, which rejects the, the entire spiritual, ethical, and, and moral traits of man in favor of reducing man to a mere economic unit. And there's an Italian atheist, Umberto Eco, he says that fascist cult of tradition and appeal to the, the past and heritage of the old, he said that it's actually a thinly disguised rejection of modernism that they um, dress up as a rejection of capitalism. Well, don't modernism and capitalism kind of go hand in hand, though, Bill? Well, well absolutely. Modernism, <laughs> ca- capitalism created modernism, did it not? I, I mean, I would think the, so. Well, the Jews created both. 
Americas. And he also denounces them as anti-intellectual for their attacks on, quote, modern culture and modern science and modern art. Well, well, well modern culture, science, and art are all anti-intellectual themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they are the arch nemesis of, of intellectualism. <laughs> all right. I'm sorry, go on if you had something. I was going to say that modern art is the belief that anything that you can discern the meaning of by looking at it within 20 or 30 seconds can't really be art, that you need to look at it for an hour and then pay some homosexual Jew a lot of money to tell you what the artist is trying to say. Look at it for an hour, I'd be poisoning my brain, right? I really want to sledgehammer the most modern art. I, I remember Ger Gerald described. told me he was in a museum decades ago looking at a painting, and the... Uh, he was looking at it for five, six minutes, couldn't figure out what it was. And suddenly the curator came by and said, oh, this, is on, this, is, this needs to be turned. And the guy turned at 90 degrees. And he was still looking at it and couldn't figure out what it was. You know, I was 17 when I made my first trip to the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art, and, and it was straight garbage, right? And I, I decided that at 17. I didn't know why it was straight garbage, but it, it surely wasn't art. When I was 17, I was at a modern art gallery in London, and it was hosted by the Bloomberg Foundation. And all the one of the uh, masterpieces was a large black question mark. Another one was a a real tiny dot that you had to use like a magnifying glass to look at. And I noticed all the names, and I told my mother, you know, they they ought to just call this Jewish art instead of modern art. And some Jew nearby, he he kind of. He snorted at me when I, I said that Jews are only capable of perversion, and then this guy, he, he grunted and huffed, and I said, oh, he must have a nasal problem. I don't have the name right now. I'm going to try to come up with a name. I think it was Anderson, Walter Anderson. I was in Biloxi, Mississippi a few months ago, and, and um, with Max and Warren Powell were, were my hosts, and they were really excellent guys, and they brought me to the Walter Anderson Museum. And the Jews in Biloxi, it must be Jews. There has to be Jews behind us. It, it's incredible. They're, they're really promoting this Walter Anderson as an artistic genius. And um, I did a tour of this museum, and I took some pictures, and they're on williamthink.net under my 2012 summer travels. And these pictures, I intend to make a commentary on them eventually, but it, it's graffiti. It's childish graffiti. That this man, he, he was nuts. He had a wife. He had four kids. He left them home to starve in the middle of the Depression while he rowboated out to an island to draw pictures of animals and, and you know, the flora and fauna of the island in the Gulf of Mexico. And basically, the pictures that he drew look nothing like reality. That they're not. That they're not real at all. There's no realism to them at all. I can't understand why he had to take a rowboat out to an island to portray what is basically caricatures of of, of real animals. And, and yeah, yeah. And and they're portraying this guy as a genius. And I I toured this art museum, thinking that he was an idiot. That my grandson could do that stuff. I'm looking at my, it right now, and it just looks like distortions from a, a perverse mind well, well yeah it's, it's nothing there's nothing real about it and they're portraying this guy as a genius and they're cashing in on on his work uh, i mean he had some nice 
he had some nice designs, but they were designs. They weren't art. That they may have adorned a a, um, a a corporate logo somewhere on a cereal box, right? But but they were saying he was a naturalist. How could he be a naturalist if something this perverse came from his mind? Right. It's abs- it, it's it was horrible. It, it was and and they're promoting this guy as a genius. It's not the replication of natural beauty. This is a distortion of natural beauty. But we paid ten bucks to get into the Walter Anderson Museum. Ten bucks each to get into this museum, and and it was a total waste of money, right? And and the, and, and the woman behind the counter was saying that the room was worth three hundred million dollars. Yet you know the room was a, a lot of his murals in it, and I figure it's only three hundred million dollars because if you divide that by ten bucks, that's about how many visitors they expect, right? Or well, I would have like, asked her if if the walls, the floors, and the ceiling were made of gold. Well, well it, it was straight garbage, and, and they're promoting that as art, and, and that's the cultural scene in Biloxi, Mississippi. Hmm. Uh, I have some other stuff in Biloxi, Mississippi that, that fits into the artist's realm. There is a large, and, and there's pictures of this on WilliamFink.net also, there's a very large granite, polished granite World War II monument, and this monument has drawings on it of soldiers, and the drawings of the soldiers on the monument, it, it's a memorial. You know, it has a list of names of people in Biloxi that were in the war or died in the war or whatever. And, and all of the drawings are African-American in nature, and they're all totally childish. Hmm. It looks like they enlisted black school children to make these drawings. That's what it looks like. And, and this is um, a, a civic memorial, and, and it's a real degradation of Western culture. It, it really is. But we've gone a hell of a long way downhill from the Parthenon to third grade drawn, you know, childish, pictures of childish Negroes on our memorials drawn by black third graders. That's what it looked like. And if there is anybody around in 100 years that would care, you know, to look back and examine history and examine art and culture, if we have great-great-grandchildren and they're able to look back if the world hasn't been destroyed yet, they're probably going to think that we existed in the, under the height of insanity, that we actually held up these drawings and these paintings as art and built galleries for them instead of throwing them in a trash heap. Yeah, yeah right. It, it's, it's insane. You won't find anything like Trajan's Gate in, in Biloxi, Mississippi, I'll tell you that. And, and Biloxi, I, I shouldn't pick on Biloxi, but there's probably a, a thousand cities in America just like it that are doing the same exact thing, that are totally degrading our culture and heritage. You, you would expect that sort of degradation, though, in Manhattan or San Francisco or Los Angeles, wouldn't you? It seems that the the southern cities now, they want to be hip and trendy, so they, they take their cues from the big northern cities. Well, the pictures are under my summer travels in 2012 in, in WilliamFink.net if you want to see them. Eventually, eventually they might end up in a Saxon Messenger or, or on Christagenia somewhere in the commentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I can only do so much, and, and I've been tied up with tech work. So it's hard to produce content. It's hard to produce the content that I want when I'm tied up with tech work. Okay, this is um, Benito Mussolini, and, and I should say Giovanni Gentile or Gentili. And I've had information, I've had accusations and emails that he was a Jew. It doesn't really matter to me if Giovanni Gentili is a Jew or not, because what we're presenting here. It is a, um, an outline of what Benito Mussolini's idea of fascism was 
from a source that was approved and, and endorsed by Benito Mussolini himself, right? So, so it doesn't matter if a Jew wrote it, that this, is, um, that this document is for historical purposes and, and to satiate our need to understand what fascism actually was. And, and um, well, well uh, you, you, you will be hard-pressed to find any political movement in the West that has not been infiltrated by the enemies of Christ, that there's no doubt. Okay, we left off with political and social doctrine last week, and that's where I'll pick up here. This is from Benito Mussolini. When in the now distant March of 1919, speaking through the columns of the Popola d'Italia, I summoned to Milan the surviving interventionists who had intervened and who had followed me ever since the foundation of the fascist revolutionary action in January 1915. I had in mind no specific doctrinal program. So actually Benito Mussolini started out as a political leader without a doctrinal program, which, which is kind of strange, uh, I think. It, it's, it, it sounds like most of our politicians today it also. just that his only program was personal power. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that's what it seems to be because he admits that he had no program. I mean, he may have had feelings and emotions, and I'm sure that he did, right? But he really had – Yeah, you know, Adolf Hitler, before Adolf Hitler, um, before Adolf Hitler actually entered the realm of politics as a candidate, he already had written Mein Kampf, and, and his – doctrinal program for the resurrection of Germany was already um, laid out in its pages, right? Where Mussolini is doing the exact opposite, right? He's a politician running on, on emotion and, and ideas, but he has no, 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 um, no, no framework with which to elucidate the things that he, you know, how he felt the nation should actually be run. The only doctrine of which I had practical experience was that of socialism. He was in the Socialist Party, right? From the winter of 1914, nearly a decade, my experience was that both of a follower and a leader, but it was not a doctrinal experience. My doctrine during that period had been the doctrine of action, a uniform, universally accepted doctrine of socialism had not existed since 1905. I'm sure he's talking about in Italy, right? When the revisionist movement, no, he's not. When the revisionist movement led by Bernstein arose in Germany, that's odd, a universally accepted, well, maybe universally accepted is the key word there to understand that. Countered by the formation in the seesaw of tendencies of a left revolutionary movement which in Italy never quitted the field of phrases. In other words, he's saying it was all rhetoric and no fruition, right? No, not, no real implementation. They never got beyond arguing. And the Italian socialists, I believe they were, they were famous for debating and discussing and arguing and bickering back and forth, and they basically never achieved anything except street violence. And, and that's exactly the, um, the political behavior that Adolf Hitler despised in the pages of Mein Kampf, right? And that's why he despised parliamentarianism. 
Whereas in the case of Russian socialism, it became the prelude to Bolshevism. So he's saying that this had fruition, this socialism had fruition in Russia, right? But, but not in Italy. That's probably a good, a good thing that Italy didn't repeat the, the Soviet experiment, the Bolshevik experiment, right? There probably weren't a whole lot of people ready to finance a Bolshevik revolution in Italy, though, compared to Russia, since Russia had so much more in the way of resources that it was better that for the Jews that they spend their money in Russia where they would get more return. Reformism, revolutionism, centrism, the very echo of that terminology is dead, while in a great river of fascism one can trace currents which had their source in Sorel, who was a French revolutionary syndicalist, right? So we see the syndicalism in Mussolini's um, political philosophy. Pouguet, who was a French essayist, and Pouguet was, uh, I might be mispronouncing that, it's P-E-G-U-Y, and French is not meant to be pronounced by real men. Pouguet is a French essayist and a nationalist and a socialist, so we see him in, 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 um, you know, in Mussolini's philosophical underpinnings. Lagardel, who was another French syndicalist, who was influenced by Proudhon and, and Sorel in turn, and he moved to the right and served as a Vichy minister later, labor later, later on. So, so he's saying that, I'm, I'm going to repeat this because I've interrupted it too much, right? I'm sorry. Reformism, revolutionism, centrism, the very echo of that terminology is dead, while in the great river of fascism one can trace currents, which had their source in Sorel, Puglay, Lagardel, and Lagardel of the of the movement socialists and in the cohort of Italian syndicalists who from 1904 to 1914 brought a new note into the Italian socialist environment, previously emasculated and chloroformed by fornicating with Giolatti's party. And that references to Giovanni Giolatti, who, who was of the Democrat party, and he was a center-left liberal, right? And his scheme... He, he, he was the second longest running prime minister in Italy after Mussolini, and his scheme was to unite the center of both the right and the left to get a majority that, and, and to marginalize the, the left and right wing extremists. Sounds like the American, um, it, it basically is that the, the American political philosophy today, right, is to unify the center against the extremes. A note sounded in Olivetti's Pagane Libre, Orano's Lupa, and Enrico de Leon's Diviner's Sociales. It, it's, um, it, he's listing a, a, a group of works which explain the, the, the foundations of fascism. And, and we see that it's syndicalism, and, and it's basically that there's national socialist thought which is incorporated into it. National socialism is not nationalism and socialism and and putting those two concepts together are not new with adolf hitler right uh, i mean that's definitely a product of 19th century french thought and 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 that's yeah you know i haven't seen it before that but we see it in in france a hundred years before hitler do you have any comments not particularly at this time no oh okay well well that's so so we see that that um 
Mussolini is saying that the great river of fascism can trace its currents to syndicalists, and, and syndicalism is the guild idea of, of the guild control over the economy, which is the corporation in, in Italian, which is the corporation in the terminology of Benito Mussolini. But it's not the American commercial company. The corporation is a guild, and, and Mussolini's economic philosophy was to, to allow the trade guilds and the various economic sectors to control their own pieces of the economy, right? I mean, that's what the guild is. When the war ended in 1919, socialism as a doctrine was already dead. It continued to exist only as a grudge, especially in Italy, where its only chance lay in inciting to reprisals against the men who had willed the war and who were to be made to pay for it. Now, now I haven't done enough research in this area, Brian, but, but I, have diver, I have conflicting sources that tell me that Mussolini was ejected from the Socialist Party in Italy or that he left. I was hoping you'd be able to clarify that, and if not, maybe we'll research it and clarify I, it next I, week. I believe he left because the socialists did not support his support for Italy's entry into World War One. He was basically he'd become a, a patriotic war hawk, if you want to use the term, and they just had so many differences that he just said, "I'm done with you people," and he left. Well, well, there is a, there is statements. I think we've seen them already, or, or we're about to see them. I'm not sure. There are statements in this paper. I don't remember exactly where they are. Where, where Benito Mussolini was actually proud of of being in the vanguard in in the fa- among the fascists in 1915 to get Italy into the war. And I think we saw that last week, where they had interests. In in the Adriatic region and and north of the Adriatic in in um what was then Austrian territory, and, and they had interests in the Tyrol. They they wanted Tyrolean land from 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 the Germans, right? So so they signed a secret agreement and entered the war on the side of England and Russia and France against Germany and Austria Hungary. And they were burned in the end because they did not get the territory that they thought they were going to get north of the Adriatic. That was incorporated, I believe, into Yugoslavia, wasn't it? What's that? Italy wanted territory from, I believe, along the um, Adriatic coast and what is today Croatia, Dalmatia. Wasn't that part of? I mean, I, I might be wrong, but I thought it was part of Yugoslavia after World War One. I. I, I may be wrong. Yes, but they it, also wanted. It, they also wanted it, Trieste. Yeah. Versailles. They, they expected it at Versailles, and and they didn't get it, and 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 they were um, more or less shunned, right? I wonder why would they want Dalmatia? There were basically no Italians there, although apparently they claimed that thirty percent of the population spoke primarily Italian, which seems an odd claim, considering it was mostly um, Croats and Serbs living in Dalmatia. Uh, I I know that that district was conquered by Trajan, I think, about 110 or in, in there, 120 AD, and it was um, eventually fell to the Goths, right? Mm. In, in perhaps the 3rd or 4th century AD. That, that's off the top of my head. It, it's not an original, it, it's not even, it, it's an early Roman province, but it's not one of the earliest, right? It, it was actually one of the last expansions, I believe, of, of the old Roman Empire. 
when the war on both depending who you ask if you go to more or less objective neutral encyclopedias and academic sources Mussolini left the socialist party if you go to the sources such as Rev left and other you know Marxists and Leninists Mussolini was kicked out of the socialist party for being a, a crypto capitalist well, well, there again, it seems that they they are confusing fascism and capitalism, right? And they say that yes. Mussolini was an anti-socialist, the quintessential anti-socialist. The Popola d'Italia described itself in its subtitle as the daily organ of fighters and producers. The word producer was already the expression of a mental trend. Fascism was not the nursling of a doctrine previously drafted at a desk. It was born of the need of action and was action. It was not a party, but in the first two years, an anti-party and a movement. The name I gave the organization fixed its character, but which was the same, um, basically the same ploy Adolf Hitler used, right? Yet if anyone cares to reread the now crumpled sheets of those days giving an account of the meeting at which the Italian Fasci di Combatimento were founded, he will not find a doctrine, but a series of pointers, forecasts, hints which, when freed from the inevitable matrix of contingencies, were to develop in a few years' time into a series of doctrinal positions entitling fascism to rank as a political doctrine differing from all others, past or present. If the bourgeois, I then said, believe that they have found in us their lightning conductors, they are mistaken. So, so we see he wasn't a capitalist, that's for sure. We must go towards the people. We wish the working classes to accustom themselves to the responsibilities of management so that they may realize that it is no easy matter to run a business. We will fight both technical and spiritual rearguardism. Now that the succession of the regime is open, we must not be faint-hearted. We must rush forward. If the present regime is to be superseded, we must take its place. The right of succession is ours, for we urge the country to enter the war. And, and this is where he's bragging about the fascists leaving the charge to get Italy to enter the First World War, right? And we led it to victory. The existing forms of political representation cannot satisfy us. We want direst representation of the several interests. It may be objected that this program implies a return to the guilds. And, and the Italian word there is corporazioni, or the corporations, but it refers to trade guilds in Italian. And An association not, of people. Yeah, yeah, right. It does not refer to for-profit companies, as, so, as we see in the United States. When a Western audience, though, when they hear the term fascist corporatism, they think, oh, corporations are going to run society, and we're all going to be slaves to big business. Well, well, right, exactly, and that's because they don't understand that the word simply means something different in Italian than it does in English. It may be objected that this program implies a return to the guilds. No matter. I therefore hope this assembly will accept the economic claims advanced by national syndicalism. 
And we saw, we did a, um, a segment on syndicalism when we were discussing the revolutions of, of the um, 19th century last year, right? And, and those, the, those podcasts are available at the MK Project, the Mein Kampf Project at Christagenia. And he says it's, that about taking the place of the present regime, you know, superseding it. And it makes me wonder, you know, Americans in, in the, the right, in the patriot scene, they really have no plan of succession for this present government or our system of government, do they? I mean, the only thing it seems we can agree on is that this government is unacceptable. The people running our society now are not the legitimate heirs to the legacy of our founding fathers, and they, they need to go, but no one can agree on what they should be replaced with. You know, the, the, the libertarians want it replaced basically with nothing. They prefer anarchy. Well, well, wasn't that what Proudhon did in, in, in revolutionary France in 1848, right? Topple the government and replace it with nothing. That they replaced the government with nothing, and, and they didn't know what the heck they were doing, and, and, and it was that they didn't last long, did they? And we discussed that in the Mein Kampf Project in, 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 the, um, in, in our series on the revolutions in Europe last year. Well, Mussolini is reported to have said that every anarchist is a baffled dictator. There's certainly well, some insight in there, isn't there? Well, well, that's that's true in a way because if you can't control the whole pie, you want to control your little slice, right? Hmm. And that's basically what an anarchist is. That the the um the 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 belief in tearing down all governments so that you yourself can control your little piece and, and tyrannize your little piece around you, right? Now, that's the way I look at anarchy anyway. They, they lack the vision and the strength to figure out how to run all of society so they're content to run a little square of it. Yeah, yeah right. If they could destroy it and, and run their little piece, it, it, it's like a return to the old village chieftain hmm. you, you know, or, form of society, right? Since they don't know how to be an emperor, they're happy running a city-state. Not even. Maybe a, maybe, maybe a city square. Mm. Is it not strange? From the very first day at Piazza San Sepulcro, the word guild, corporacion, was pronounced. A word which, as the revolution developed, was to express one of the basic legislative and social creations of the regime. The years preceding the March on Rome cover a period during which the need of action forbade delay and careful doctrinal elaborations. Fighting was going on in the towns and villages. There were discussions, but there was something more sacred and more important, death. Fascists knew how to die. They knew how to sacrifice their cause, right? A doctrine fully elaborated, divided up into the chapters and paragraphs with annotations may have been lacking, but it was replaced by something far more decisive, by a faith. All the same, if with the help of books, articles, resolutions passed at Congresses, major and minor speeches, anyone should care to revive the memory of those days, he will find, provided he knows how to seek and select, that the doctrinal foundations were laid while the battle was still raging. Indeed, it was during those years that fascist thought armed, refined itself, and proceeded ahead with its organization. The problems of the individual and the state, the problems of authority and liberty, political, social, and more especially national problems were discussed. The conflict 
with liberal, democratic, socialistic, Masonic doctrines and with those of the Partito Popolare, the popular party, was carried on at the same time as the punitive expeditions. Nevertheless, the lack of a formal system was used by disingenuous adversaries as an argument for proclaiming fascism incapable of elaborating a doctrine at the very time when that doctrine was being formulated, no matter how tumultuously. First, as is the case with all new ideas, in the guise of violent dogmatic negations, then in the more positive guise of constructive theories, subsequently incorporated in 1926, 27, and 28 in the laws and institutions of the regime. So they made up the rules as they went along, and he's basically admitting it, right? But they had their ideas. I mean, their ideas were grounded in syndicalism and in nationalism and in socialism. It's, Isn't that it happens with a revolution, though? You have to make up the institutions as you go along. Well, well, right. The, the founding fathers of, of the United States had their faith in the Declaration of Independence and, and that they didn't codify it until the Articles of Confederation, right? Mm-hmm. Well, which were then replaced, for better or worse, by the Constitution. And, unless you're those revolutionaries in Libya where you seize Benghazi and the first thing you do is found a central bank and start making appeals to the globalists. A revolution is made up as it goes. I mean, honestly, how many many revolutionaries come to power, and within a week they've set up all the instruments and mechanisms of state that they're going to need? It doesn't work that way in a real revolution of the people, does it? No. No, and it's better that institutions, that that state institutions actually come up out of the grassroots, right? That's Mm -hmm. usually the way I see it. And, And they're not forced onto the people artificially. But but that's you know that that's the way America began. Uh, American institutions were, were were formatted from the ground up, right? By the people. It, it seems to me they started with the several states, and um, that that's why they ended up with the central bank, I believe, right off because none of the states had the concept of a, a single central bank, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of problems with not having a um, a formal plan laid out in advance, and and the American experiment has been the victim of all those problems. But um, but that is the way a true revolution works, right? You make up the rules as you go along. If the first thing you do is make a central bank, it begs the question if it's really a popular revolution of the people, or if it's a revolution of bought and paid for shills working for global bankers. Well, well, today we know, right? I mean, today we know, but the central bank of the United States was not a conception, it, it was not an organization that appeared as soon as a revolution was declared, you know, like we have in modern-day Libya. You know, in modern-day Libya, with, with this opposition, and, and the first thing they do is set up a central bank, you know that they're working for the global banking cartel. You know that right off, right? It was a little different in the 1770s. Fascism is now clearly defined, not only as a regime, but as a doctrine. This means that fascism, exercising its critical faculties on itself and on others, has studied from its own special standpoint and judged by its own standards all of the problems affecting the material and intellectual interests 
now causing such grave anxiety to the nations of the world and is ready to deal with them by its own policies. First of all, as regards the future development of mankind, and quite apart from all present political considerations, fascism does not, generally speaking, believe in the possibility or utility of perpetual peace. It therefore discards pacifism as a cloak for cowardly, supine renunciation in contradistinction to self-sacrifice. That was also a basic... The, the idea of self-sacrifice and, and, and um, nationalism, and it goes hand-in-hand hand with nationalism, that, that you, you can't... You know, the liberty and egalité and fraternité of the French Revolution is basically what he is contradicting here, right? It's what he's opposing here, that the idea that all, all men should be at peace with each other in a Jewish utopia, right? That's the way I look at the French Revolution. And, and that seems to be what he's countering here, right? Some people, they may contend that the National Socialists, the Fascists, the Romanian, Ukrainian Cossack pogrom perpetrators, that they're all brutal, ruthless people who are just picking on the Jews. And even if the Jews were making a lot of money and were manipulating politics, there are legitimate ways to go about countering it. And I think it's an issue of, you know, soft power versus hard power, where white people are used to a stand-up, out-in-the-street, pitched battle fight without any, you know, deception and manipulation. And the Jews are cloak-and-dagger schemers who work behind the scenes. It takes white people a long time to figure out that this cloak-and-dagger scheming is going on. And when they do, they don't meet it with more cloak-and-dagger scheming. They meet it openly and crush it. So that's why we look heavy-handed and brutal, but really... If you compare the consequences of the Jewish cloak and dagger scheming, they result, it results in the destruction and the implosion of civilization. So I don't see an issue if, you know, 20 or 30 Jewish collaborators with the Moors are uncovered in southern France and they throw open the gates to a city in Spain and it takes, you know, the, the Franks a couple of years to figure it out. When they finally figure it out, they purge the whole community. Well, well that's the, that is the... Um, Christian gullibility concerning the Antichrist, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's always been with us. We, we've never gotten there. We've never really understood that New Testament, right? Well, when, when political candidates suddenly die in accidents, there should be a pogrom against the Jews. When children are disappearing off the streets, there should be a pogrom against the Jews. Well, you know, there when was a... Shot down what, with a bullet in the back, there should be a pogrom against the Jews. Uh, I mean, well, when things go bad... Well, we should get rid of the Antichrist, and, and, and it'll be cured every time, right? There was I mean, a, that's in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, Dr. Andreas Petrus Trunich, he was the leader of the um, – the, he started a, a party called the Conservative Party in South Africa when he said the National Party was betraying the people, and they called him Dr. No – because his, his motto was no negotiations with the ANC, no recognition for the ANC, no amnesty for the ANC. And he advocated basically a pure white South Africa for the, the Boer Afrikaner people. And he died during open heart surgery. He, he, they expected it was going to be a simple procedure. He was in fairly um, great health. He went into the procedure and boom, he was dead later that day. And I have to wonder what was the name of the doctor? I doubt the doctor was a boar or even an Englishman. Okay, I thought maybe you knew. No, I, I don't know the name of the doctor. It wasn't on the. It wasn't anywhere I could find. Either you know. Fascist. 
But like you okay. said, when, when politicians wind up dead, there's an hypocrisy. When, when any nationalist or, 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 or when any anti capitalist, um, anti banker, when, when anybody that truly serves the interests of the people suddenly disappears, gets sick, dies in an accident, gets shot, there should be a pogrom against the Jews. I, I mean, it, it's very clear that the cloak and dagger operations are going on in the background when suddenly bad things are happening to good men. And if we sat here and just listed the names of people who have died under suspicious circumstances, and just to name a few, because if we wanted to list all, we'd be here all night with the whole program. But, I mean, Huey Long, General Patton, that Polish General Sikorsky, and the list goes on. These are all people who they died in very convenient ways at very convenient times. Well, well, well a couple of a couple of months ago, I actually started assembling a list of names for a program, um, and, and maybe we'll do that this summer, right? All right? I actually started assembling a list of names. Huey Long's right at the top of it, right? For a program of of great patriotic men that that were eliminated in one way or another, McCarthy, Forrestal, Patton, in the 20th century. And, and there's a whole list of them. There is a whole list of them. It, it's pretty incredible that people have not noticed this pattern because these men are ridiculed or marginalized or ignored by the media, the Jewish-controlled media, and, and in that way, attention is not drawn to their causes because their cause is totally um, contrary to the, the will of the international bankers and, and Jews in general. But, you know, some communist Jew goes missing in Chile under Pinochet's rule, and we all hear about it, and they've, uh, they've basically deified him. Right. And, and there's months of investigations and prosecutions and all kinds of garbage, right? Look, look at that Jew reporter, Daniel Pearl, right? How much ink was spent on him. First of all, regards the future development of mankind, and quite apart from all present political considerations, fascism does not, generally speaking, believe in the possibility or utility of perpetual peace. It therefore discards pacifism as a cloak for cowardly, supine renunciation in contradistinction to self-sacrifice. And that was one of the major threads in Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, what was, um, what was his, his, his sentiments against um, pacifism and against pacifistic Christianity, you know, pacifism peddled to people as, as a moral, um, as, as a moral moor in, in in order to keep people fr from rebelling against their slave masters, right? And right now, it seems that pacifistic Christianity has reached its peak. We're at the the pinnacle, the the summit here, and it's resulted and are basically capitulating, abrogating our duty to contend for the faith, and we've given up society and our entire civilization to decadent, disgusting hedonists, atheists, agnostics, skeptics, and people who would take it from us, because they're not willing to compromise. They're willing to get out there in the streets and disrupt our meetings where we won't even defend our meetings, let, let alone disrupt theirs. And I'm not saying we should disrupt theirs. We're better than that. We're not that sort of people, but we definitely need to defend our own instead of caving and just rolling over. Well, well there's a there's a vent for that, right? 
that that, that people are are convinced, Christians are being convinced and have been convinced for some time by these zeocons, I should call them, right? That, that, um, That the correct Christian aggression is against Muslims in the Middle East, right? So it, it doesn't matter if um, a pastor in Iowa is giving a sermon about homosexuality and some gay liberation army breaks in and starts attacking the congregation. There well, should be well, no outlet for aggression. It should well, be sent nigger, to Iraq. Well, when a nigger rapes your wife and daughter and kills her, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. But when some Jew in, 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 in Palestine stubs his toe on, on a Muslim camel, that, then, then, that, then we go to war, right? It's, it, I'm making a silly analogy, but it's true. Well, when a nigger rapes your wife and daughter and, and, and kills them, you're supposed to turn the other cheek and forgive him. Well, when some Jew in Palestine you know, suffers the least offense by a Muslim, it, it's war. And it's not yeah, that they're want, going to war. It's we have to go to war on their behalf. Well, well right. And, and that's the, prop, that the only proper Christian aggression which is, uh, exists in in, in social circles today is to defend those bastard Jews uh, against the bastard Muslims, right? I, I mean, <laughs> that, well, that's the way it is. And everywhere else, a Christian is supposed to be a pacifist, right? A friend of mine once summed it up thusly, that the Jews will fight to the last goyim. Yes, they will. But that's okay. In the end, we win. Fascism, I, I'm going to read this line for, the, for like the third time, right? I hope they get past it this time. Fascism does not, generally speaking, believe in a possibility or utility of perpetual peace. It therefore discards pacifism as a cloak for cowardly, supine renunciation and contradistinction to self-sacrifice. War alone keys up all human energies to their maximum tension and sets the seal of nobility on those peoples who have the courage to face it. All other tests are substitutes which never place a man face-to-face with himself before the alternative of life or death. Therefore, all doctrines which postulate peace at all costs are incompatible with fascism. Equally foreign to the spirit of fascism, even if accepted as useful in meeting special political situations, are all internationalistic or league superstructures, which, as history shows, crumble to the ground whenever the heart of nations is deeply stirred by sentimental, idealistic, or practical considerations. He's talking about like the League of Nations, the United Nations, right? Fascism carries this anti-pacifistic attitude into the life of the individual. I don't care a damn. The proud motto of the fighting squad scrawled by a wounded man on his bandages is not only an act, a philosophic stoicism, it sums up a doctrine which is not merely political. It is evidence of a fighting spirit which accepts all risks. It would be the equivalent of the, the, the 18th century, don't tread on me, right, or, or something like that. It signifies a new style of Italian life. The fascist accepts and loves life. He rejects and despises suicide as cowardly, Life, as he understands it, means duty, elevation, conquest. Life must be lofty and full. It must be lived for oneself, but above all, for others. 
both nearby and far off, present and future. Do you have a comment? Well, the Italian, of course, was Mene Frago of I Don't Care a Damn. And about this fighting spirit, it seems to me that the National Socialists in Germany and the fascists in Italy, they would have been reasonably at home in the American colonies of the 1770s and 1780s. Well, well, yeah, uh, because it's live free or die, right? I I mean, that's the New Hampshire state motto, right, from from that same period. That's anathema to the Jews, isn't it? Because it's live their way or die. Well, when they first started saying it, that they meant it. Now it describes Negroes on welfare, right? Live free or die. (laughs) And the The Jews hate that idea, don't they? Live free or die. Yeah, they do. The population... Well, they've been convicted. 200 million white Americans that they're free well, when they pay half their salary over in taxes, right? And it, when, it's the incredible. Jews, when they come to when they come to power in a place like Russia, live free or die is no longer a motto. It's pretty much a threat. If you want to live free, you can die. The population party of the regime, the population policy, I'm sorry, of the regime is the consequence of these premises. The fascist loves his neighbor. That there's a lot of Christian um, that there's a lot of Christian foundation in, in nationalism, right? Nationalism is Christian. And in fact, I wrote an editorial in the Saxon Messenger with that title a couple of months ago, right? Christianity is nationalism. It, it's the two go hand in hand. Loving your neighbor, and and if we go back to the Hebrew, the idea is to love one's fellow flock member, right? If you're a sheep, you're supposed to love the other sheep, not the wolves, right? Your neighbor isn't the person that lives next door to you. And, and, and Mussolini almost gets that here. He says the fascist loves his neighbor. But the word neighbor does not stand for some vague and unseizable conception. Love of one's neighbor does not exclude necessary educational severity. Still less does it exclude differentiation in rank. Fascism will have nothing to do with universal embraces. As a member of the community of nations, it looks other people's straight in the eyes. It is vigilant and on its guard. It follows others. In other words, you love your fellow flock members and, and you be wary of aliens, right? That only makes sense. That, that's a fascism. That, that, that is and the Christian idea of loving your neighbor is to love your brethren and love your fellow flock members, right? It is vigilant and on its guard. It follows others in all their manifestations and notes any changes in their interests, and it does not allow itself to be deceived by mutable and fallacious appearances. Such a conception of life makes fascism the resolute negation of the doctrine underlying so-called scientific and Marxian socialism, the doctrine of historic materialism which would explain the history of mankind in terms of the class struggle and by changes in the processes and instruments of production to the exclusion of all else and, and that's the attack that the, 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 that's the biggest problem with Marxist socialism right is that it reduces man to an economic entity and, and at the, at the expense everything ethical and spiritual and moral Marxism basically teaches that man is just a, a human talking animal who only exists in financial economic terms with economic consideration. 
and that there's no moral component to the existence of man. So in a sense, since Marx also taught that labor is a commodity, a resource, and like other commodities and resources, it should be free to move across borders, and that there should be no borders, since labor is just a commodity, a resource, isn't he dehumanizing the worker by putting him on level with, say, you know, iron ore or coal? If the worker well, well, is a component of production and he, he's not a person with dreams, ambitions, aspirations, hopes, feelings, desires. That is modern globalism. That, you know, Adolf Hitler and I did a podcast. We, I, th- I think we did a podcast. I don't really remember. It's still on the front page of the Mein Kampf site. It, it's got thousands of downloads. Hitler and globalism, right? And mm-hmm. and. and the point of that podcast, the point of that presentation, what was from it was all from the pages of Mein Kampf, and showed that Adolf Hitler understood that world communism, that Marxist communism, and the idea of global capitalism were really one and the same. And today we see, with, with the illegal alien problem, with the Mexicans. And, and with the Negro problem that we've had in the past, we see those Marxist concepts put into actual practice in an economy that's supposed to be conservative. Because Ronald Reagan, the great actor, and that's all he was, was a damned actor, had actually managed to convince America that globalism and free trade were conservative, right? That that was his gig, right? That's what he was put in office for. He acted and, like and, a conservative. And, and well, well, right, he did act like a conservative, and he was really a damned Marxist under the surface, right? And, and today we have this Mexican illegal alien problem, and, and the government doesn't really want to do anything about it because the corporations want them here. That is the practice. Of, that that is the theory of Marx's idea that labor is a commodity put into practice. And that's what it's all about. And and we are a Marxist communist nation, and that's only natural because communism is basically the economic expression of Talmudism, where the Jews Jews rule over society and all goyim are commodities. And they're interchangeable too, so a worker from Somalia is interchangeable with a worker from Germany, so they can move them freely back and forth between countries. Absolutely. There, there's although, no doubt. Although it's basically always a one-way exchange, isn't it? Right. Well, well, Adolf Hitler understood it. He understood it 80 or, or damn close to 90 years ago when, when Mein Kampf was being penned, and he understood that globalism, global capitalism, and, and international communism were one and the same. And today, in globalism, in the concept of modern globalism, we see those Marxist philosophies being implemented worldwide. There's no doubt. The vicissitudes of economic life, discoveries of raw materials, new technical processes, and scientific inventions have their importance no one denies, but that they suffice to explain human history to the exclusion of other factors is absurd. Fascism believes now and always in sanctity and heroism. That is to say, in acts in which no economic motive, remote or immediate, 
is at work. Having denied historic materialism, which sees in men mere puppets on the surface of history, appearing and disappearing on the crest of the waves, while in the depths the real directing forces move and work. Fascism also denies the immutable and irreparable character of class struggle, which is the natural outcome of this economic conception of history. And that was basically also Adolf Hitler's attitude, right, towards Marxist class struggle. And it was an artificial struggle, which was based on the reduction of men to an economic entity. Above all, it denies that the class struggle is the preponderating agent in social transformations. Having thus struck a blow at socialism in the two main points of its doctrine, all that remains of it is the sentimental aspiration, as old as humanity itself, towards social relations in which the sufferings and sorrows of the humbler folk will be alleviated. But here again, fascism rejects the economic interpretation of felicity as something to be secured socialistically. Almost automatically, at a given stage of economic evolution, when all will be assured a maximum of material comfort. Fascism denies the materialistic conception of happiness as a possibility. And today we have a different angle, what we're Mussolini was attacking the materialistic conception of happiness, which is found as a doctrine of social of Marxist socialism. Today we have that same conception of happiness in modern capitalism in the consumer-based society. It's a material conception of happiness, and we see in in another aspect that that modern globalism and, and capitalism and the consumer culture are basically another expression of Marxism and, and, and Marxist socialism. Well, our consumerist culture is very atheistic at the heart of it, isn't it? I mean, despite all the pretensions they make towards this nominal Christianity that they claim to believe in, we see that they are indeed, they're, they're nominalists in terms of their conception of the universe and they're nominalists in terms of their faith in Christ. Their, their real faith is in materialism. Well, well, whether the doctrine is um, well, whether the doctrine is foisted upon society from the left, from the perceived left, which is Marxist communism, right, Marxist socialism, or from the perceived right, what which is capitalism, right? It, it which is the way the the world the the, the mainstream world today splits up the political spectrum, whether it comes from the left or the right, it's still Talmudism, right? It, it's still the reduction of man to, to, um, to an economic entity that's, that, that's rewarded for good behavior and, and um, not rewarded for poor behavior. And just to clarify, when I use the term materialism in this sense, I'm speaking both in terms of their consumerist Bye 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 mentality and materialism in the historic philosophical sense. And, and anybody who's a historical materialist, if any, if somebody out there believes in you know um, economic materialism, they they necessarily have to be an atheist. They cannot be a Christian while believing in materialism. Would you? You're on the same page there, Bill. You agree? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Materialism is anti-Christian. The, 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 you know, you ever see the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins? Mm-hmm. Well, well, 
Yeah, you know, in reality, to the Christian, he who dies with the most toys loses. You have your reward in this life. You lost your your, your um, you, you lost any chance of a reward in the kingdom of heaven. Well, why would, why would you need a reward in the kingdom of heaven? You laid up all your treasures here, where rust can corrupt. Absolutely, the man who dies with the most toys loses. From a Christian perspective. He spent his entire life laying up his treasures here. So what does he need a mansion in the kingdom of heaven for? Absolutely. And I'm sure God may tell him something along those lines. Absolutely. He might get that bumper sticker. Guys <laughs> <laughs> are the most toys lost, right? Here's what you want. A bumper sticker. <laughs> no bumper to put it on. Sexism <laughs> denies the materialistic conception of happiness as a possibility and abandons it to the economists of the mid-18th century. This means that fascism denies the equation well-being equals happiness, which sees in men mere animals, content when they can feed and fatten, thus reducing them to a vegetative existence, pure and simple. Which describes half of our population today, right? They're all 100 pounds overweight. Socrates and Plato, the Greeks and most of the uh, the traditional classic philosophers, they taught that happiness is not a state of feeling. It's not a state of mind. It's not something you can induce with a drug or some sort of physical activity or an action. That happiness is a state of reality, and either you are happy or you aren't happy, and it's not something that you can measure or talk about meaningfully because it's not something that exists in our material physical limited plane of reference that it's something that's out there in an intangible form and either you exemplify and embody that form or you don't so either you're happy or you're not but the individual is not capable really of measuring his own happiness and it's not something that can be induced by digesting opium or anything along those lines where in our culture today it seems that people believe you know happiness is derived through some sort of physical pleasure so you know pop a pill take a beer you know, go um, scratch a, a sexual urge. It, it seems that we, we do have a very materialistic culture, and if it feels good, do it, because that is happiness. That's what they believe, isn't it? Well, well absolutely, and it's led to the, the, the decadent, um, lascivious, and hedonistic culture that we see around us today. Mm-hmm. That there's no doubt. And Sex makes you feel good. Um, toys make you feel good. You have to have sex and buy toys, and and that's what makes that that's what most people think makes them feel good, and, and that's why most people are, are spiritually void, because their sex has come to mean nothing to them, and, and their sexual activity, and and it's become routine and and void of meaning, and and, and material goods. There, there's no happiness, and there's no true happiness in. In, in material goods. I, I mean, you can't ride your motorcycle all the time, and, and um, it, it's not going to make your ills go away or, or your jet ski or, or what, whatever toys you're pursuing, maybe your Mercedes-Benz or your BMW or your Corvette Stingray. They're, they're not going to make you happy. I think a lot of people are acquiring all of these possessions to try and gloss over and conceal the fact that their life is empty and void of any higher meaning. Well, well absolutely. And that's that they've substituted material wealth for 
true spiritual understanding and true spiritual happiness. Mm-hmm. And the Greeks taught that the happiness would be attained through the um, pursuit of virtue, wisdom, knowledge, truth, and beauty. And most people today wouldn't even agree that we have an objective standard of beauty. They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is how they justify modern art. But I I think that the fascists and the National Socialists, they have a much healthier concept, and they realize that beauty exists in nature. It is naturally occurring. Common citizens can recognize it when they see it, and they can recognize the lack of it and the absence of it. So when a common peasant looks upon a so-called work of art and sees only a distorted, twisted perversion that came out of the mind of Satan, he can recognize that that's not art and pronounce it as such, and he doesn't need to have gone to college and received a degree in art history to become an art critic to realize that what he's looking at is nothing. It's filth. I mean, if, if a child can look at a drawing and say, that's ugly, then it doesn't matter what 15 art critics in New York City say. Would you agree, Bill? Absolutely. There's no doubt. After socialism, art should, art should be appreciated by people, and that's art, right? It shouldn't be a forced, interpreted, um, dictated appreciation, right? That's why the Germans were so keen, I believe, to purge the art galleries of Jewish art, and the Jews bitterly complained. Well, from, you know, say 1915 to 1933, the Jews basically dominated the art scene in, in Germany, and it was a de facto purge of any traditional real art. If you were a genuine artist, you didn't get any exposure. You didn't get it. No one would commission you. No one would pay for it. So you'd have to hold down a day job, and no gallery would display your work. They certainly wouldn't showcase it as a centerpiece. So I think the Germans were just returning what the Jews had been dishing out. It was a it was a full circle, you know, karma. That's what it basically boils down to. The Jews were on top for several decades and ruthlessly persecuted German art, real art. So they got their comeuppance. They didn't get it enough. After socialism, fascism trains its guns on a whole block of democratic ideologies and rejects both their premises and their practical applications and implements. Fascism denies that numbers, as such, can be the determining factor in human society. It denies the right of numbers to govern by means of periodical consultations. It asserts the irremediable and fertile and beneficent inequality of men who cannot be leveled by any such mechanical and extrinsic device as universal suffrage. That's a very healthy attitude, right? Democratic regimes may be described, and and this is actually a pretty good quote, and I, I, I actually put it on my advertisement for this for this program tonight. Democratic regimes may be described as those under which the people are, from time to time, deluded into the belief that they exercise sovereignty while all the time real sovereignty resides in and is exercised by other, and sometimes, or I I would change it to usually, irresponsible and secret forces. And that's exactly the American democratic experience. Democracy is a kingless regime infested by many kings who are sometimes more exclusive, tyrannical, and destructive than one, even if he be a tyrant. This explains why fascism, 
although for contingent reasons it was Republican in tendency prior to 1922, abandoned that stand before the March on Rome, convinced that the form of government is no longer a matter of preeminent importance, and because the study of past and present monarchies and past and present republics shows that neither monarchy nor republic can be judged subspecie aeterniatis, which means under the form of eternity, but that each stands for a form of government expressing the political evolution, the history, the traditions, and the psychology of a, different, of, of a given country. Fascism has outgrown the dilemma, monarchy versus republic, over which democratic regimes too long dallied, attributing all insufficiencies to the former and proving the later as a regime of perfection. Whereas the experience teaches that some republics are inherently reactionary and absolutist, while some monarchies accept the most daring political and social experiments. In other words, with, with the fascist concept, it doesn't matter if you have a monarchy or a republic. Incidentally, though, the monarchy betrayed Mussolini and sided with the Allies. You remember when King Victor Emmanuel III dismissed Mussolini after the Allied landing in Naples? Right. So that was one thing that Hitler brought up as a criticism, telling Mussolini basically, from what I've heard anyway, in a conversation they had, Hitler articulated the idea that Mussolini should have abolished the monarchy when he had the chance. In one of his philosophic meditations, Renan, and, and Renan means Joseph Ernest Renan, who was a French expert of Middle East, ancient languages, and civilizations, but he was actually from Brittany. He was not a Jew. And he was best known for his influential historical works on early Christianity and his political theories, especially concerning nationalism and national identity. What we see a lot of nationalism in fascism and, and a lot of, well, well socialism and, and syndicalism. In one of his philosophic meditations, Renan, who had pre-fascist intuitions, remarks, reason and science are the products of mankind, but it is chimerical to seek reason directly for the people and through the people. It is not essential to the existence of reason that all should be familiar with it. And even if all had to be initiated, this could not be achieved through democracy, which seems fated to lead to the extinction of all arduous forms of culture and all highest forms of learning. The maxim that society exists only for the well-being and freedom of the individuals composing it does not seem to be in conformity with nature's plans, which care only for the species and seem ready to sacrifice the individual. It is much to be feared that the last word of democracy thus understood, and let me hasten to add that it is susceptible of a different interpretation, would be a form of society in which a degenerate mass would have no thought beyond that of enjoying the ignoble pleasures of the vulgar. And that's exactly what we have in America today. That is exactly the American democracy today, what, where the degenerate mass has no thought beyond that of enjoying the ignoble pleasures of the vulgar. Well, 
they're not even capable of intelligent, meaningful conversation. They, can, they can't get into any sort of deep discourse on political ideology or current events. All they talk about are basically their upcoming sexual conquests, their binge drinking, their drug using, and just squandering their time in meaningless, trivial pursuits, yet they feel that they're entitled to a vote because of universal suffrage, one man, one vote. Sex, food, and toys. That's it. That's all they care about. And and this paper on fascism just pegs democracy and, and shows exactly what the Weimar Republic became and, and exactly what all of the Western democracies have become. Well, even, though they, hmm? even though they weren't at that level when this paper was written. But the foundation had been laid. Hitler even said that Marxism cannot rise without parliamentary democracy, that it, parliamentarian democracy is the petri dish which gives rise to the bacilli of Marxist-Leninist revolution by degenerating the culture and degenerating the nation. In rejecting democracy, fascism rejects the absurd, and it is absurd, conventional lie of political equalitarianism. Remember I said earlier that his main thesis was in response to the ideals of the French Revolution, right? The habit of collective irresponsibility, the myth of felicity and indefinite progress. But if democracy be understood as meaning a regime in which the masses are not driven back to the margin of the state, then the writer of these pages has already defined fascism as an organized, centralized, authoritarian democracy. Because it really doesn't matter what, what the, you know, National Socialism was a democracy, but it was a different sort of democracy, right? It, it elected a Fuhrer who, who had basically um, most of the political power, right? And, and that was the way Adolf Hitler had planned it. Fascism is definitely and absolutely opposed to the doctrines of liberalism, both in the political and the economic sphere. The importance of liberalism in the 19th century should not be exaggerated for present-day polemical purposes, nor should we make of one of the many doctrines which flourished in that century a religion for mankind for the present. And that's exactly what liberalism has become, a religion of mankind for the present and for all time to come. Liberalism really flourished for 15 years only. It arose in 1830 as a reaction to the Holy Alliance, which tried to force Europe to recede further back than 1789. It touched its zenith in 1848, when even Pius IX was a liberal. Its decline began immediately after that year. If 1848 was a year of light and poetry, 1849 was a year of darkness and tragedy. The Roman Republic was killed by a sister republic, that of France, in the same year Marx, in his famous Communist Manifesto, launched the gospel of socialism, what well, certainly wasn't a mistake, right? Okay, I think this is probably a good breaking point, Brian, and we'll finish this paper next week. All right. And we'll discuss liberalism, and, and perhaps we can... Um, Oh, and one quick thing about Pius IX. His um, stint with the Socialist Party, right? Pius IX, according to Wiki anyway, liberal Europe applauded his election. 
He abolished the requirements for Jews to attend Christian services and sermons and opened the papal charities to the needy of all communities. Needy Jews. I, I can't imagine any needy Jews in Italy, can you? I mean, what, what would they need? They'd have, they already have all the plundered and inherited wealth from the De Medici reign. So what more do they need? Can you think of anything, know. Bill? There probably were some some, um, some unfortunate Jews in southern Italy and Sicily and in, in, in medieval Italy. But, I mean, but, uh, there weren't enough rich, productive urban artisans to exploit. I, well, well they, 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 they were probably not commensurate with, with the number of poor Italians, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the idea of a needy Jew, even if a needy Jew exists, doesn't really upset me, right? There was a charity around here called The Helping Jew, and they found out that 99% of all contributions were going to administrative overhead. I wouldn't doubt it one bit. That's when a Jew wants a job, he starts a charity, right? If he can't get a job in his uncle's stock brokerage or in his uncle's bank, he starts a charity. And they said that the the, um, president of the charitable foundation was not available for comment. Of course not. He's in the Hamptons. Okay, uh, we'll so go we will end this program here, week, and we'll pick it up next week with part three, and and hopefully by then we'll finish this paper. I'm not positive, right? I I can't promise. All right, great then. And I, I would like to move on and compare a lot of Adolf Hitler's, um, eventually compare a lot of Adolf Hitler's philosophical and and economic principles to. And, and political principles to what we've read in Mussolini, right? All right, great. Praise God and good night. I will be here Friday night with Luke chapter 12 and next Saturday with part three of our discussion of fascism. Good night. Thank you for lis- listening. Thank you. Yahweh bless. Yahweh bless. Praise Yahweh.